you join me in prayer this morning? Oh Lord Jesus Christ, we worship you this morning because you have arisen, that your word has come true, that all that you promised has come to pass. Lord Jesus, we worship you because you have been exalted to the highest place, that you've been given the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we worship you, our Savior, that you have risen. And and we are here today, Lord Jesus, because you have breathed spiritual life into us. That, Lord Jesus, we worship you not because we figured it out, but because you spoke to us, just as you spoke to Lazarus, and said, Lazarus, come out. You have spoken to our hearts. And our dead, sealed, buried hearts have come to new life through your power. And so, God, we worship You today because You've called us forth as Your followers. That that already we see the resurrection power of Christ awakening dead sinners to faith in You. And God, we just pray that as we gather here in this worship service, that Your resurrection power would be poured out upon us. We know, God, that You are sovereign. We know, Jesus, that You are risen. We know, Holy Spirit, that You are here. But we pray for uh, a manifestation of the influence of the Holy Spirit today. We pray, Lord, for uh, believers here, that for this church, that we would be a church full of your life and your power. God, we, we just dread the thought of being a dead, merely rote, routine kind of church where we come on Sundays and go through the motions and fulfill our duties. Oh, God, save us from that fate. And Lord, help us to be a living church where we come and we encounter you week after week. And Lord, where we come and our lives are changed by that resurrection power that we're celebrating today. And so God, we want to really know You. We want to really have Your voice speak into our hearts. And so Lord, as we turn to Your Word now, we pray that Your Spirit would speak to us. That Lord, it would not be the preacher's words, but that Lord, it would be You speaking to each heart. Oh God, I I just am so utterly powerless to do anything. It must be Your Word and Your Spirit, Lord, that does the work. And so, Lord, we we just build the altar and we put the wood on it, but God, You must send the fire. So, Lord, we just pray You'd send Your fire on us now as we open up Your Word and study what You have to say. And we pray this all in the name of Christ, the risen Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, invite any kids here, ages kindergarten to second grade, if they'd like to be dismissed to Children's Church. Kids, uh, if you'd like your kids to go, if you're new and you have a little kid, we'd love to watch them for you if they're kindergarten to second grade, and that'll just give you a little maybe break during the message. You can find it through the door over here by the piano. Would the rest of you open up your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 14? If you do not have a Bible, you can find one in the pew rack in front of you, and you can turn to page 638. And you'll find uh, Proverbs 14. Uh, if you're if this is your first time at South Shore Baptist, I just want to welcome you. Really glad that you're here celebrating uh, on the Lord's Day, on the Easter Sunday with us. Kids in suits crack me up. It's awesome. Should have a parade. Um, so we're, we're studying. Uh, for those of you who are new, we're really glad that you're here. Uh, we are studying in the Book of Proverbs in the Old Testament and. You know, we're kind of simple here in this church. We just get together, we worship Jesus, and we study this book. And it's the weirdest thing. We open up this old, dusty book, and 
every week it rocks our world. And we're spoken to by God and we're challenged and transformed. And we think, oh, it can't happen again this week. And we open it up. It doesn't matter who's preaching. It's the Word. The Word of God is alive. And so that's what we're about as a church. We're about loving Jesus and studying His Word and letting, and letting it change us so that we live differently during the week and have a hope. So we're glad that you're here to join us in that task. So we've been studying through Proverbs. And, you know, I'm kind of sort of a routine sort of person. So I, I can't really get out of Proverbs, even if it's Easter. But I did find a proverb that I think is apropos to this Sunday. It's Proverbs chapter 14, verse 32. It says, When calamity comes, the wicked are brought down. But even in death, even in death, the righteous have a refuge. So apparently, uh, we should have been investing in gold the last couple of years, huh? Or silver, or maybe in the last six months. Uh, as the economy has become more rickety and the dollar has kind of fallen, people have sought a refuge for their money in precious metals because hopefully that will retain its value. And you know, that's how it is when you're in economically uncertain times or politically kind of sketchy times like we are today in an election cycle so it always seems to be that way. Or but there's a personally um, shaky time in our lives. Our natural instinct is to run for refuge, to find a safe haven from the storms that are coming upon us. Uh, you know, when life is good and the sun is shining and you're financially sound and your family's doing great and you're full of relationships and your health is good. You know, you, you don't think about things like refuge and safety. You know, it's more like the sound of music. You know, when Julie Andrews is out there on the, the Alpine Meadow singing, the hills are alive. And, you know, you just kind of enjoy life. Life is good. But then, as always seems to happen, eventually the storm clouds start coming over the mountain and the sky becomes dark and the wind picks up and we start to hear lightning and the rain begins to drop and at and, and that time, on the side of a mountain in a lightning and hailstorm, the last thing you want to do is be out in an alpine meadow spinning around. And so you begin to look for shelter. You say, this is bad. I need to find refuge. And so you want to find some cave where you can get out of uh, the storm and out of danger of hypothermia and wind and lightning and all that stuff. And, and uh, you know, that's how it is in our lives. We, we look for some kind of refuge. When I was thinking about this whole idea of refuge that we have in this verse, I was remembering a sort of a fond family memory I have when I was down in Florida a couple of years back and my uh, two oldest kids and I were at the beach and we were digging around the sand and whatever. And I sort of looked out over the ocean, big, you know, beautiful sunny Florida day and out over the ocean there was this black cloud and you could see like the sheet of rain coming down and like, oh, you know, there's a storm over there. And so we were playing and I looked up and it was a little closer and we kept playing and, and I looked up again and it was like right off the shore and it suddenly it dawned on me, like, aha, uh-huh. This is moving toward us. Um, and, and, and it wasn't just like, like some sprinkles, but you, you could look at it. Like, it was like a squall. It, it was this wall of, of darkness and rain just plowing toward us. And so I realized, you know, we need to do something about this. So I, I said, kids, you know, we, we need to get going here. And I, and I realized, I was like, you know, as fast as this is moving, we're probably not going to make it back to the condo. So we did something fun. We ran up off the beach onto the the grassy field that's there, and there's a little sort of covered canopy that wasn't going to protect us, I realized. So, that, so what we did was we, um, 
we took a, a beach chair, one of those lounge chairs that was there, and we flipped it on its side, and we covered it with like boogie boards and blankets and towels and everything we had. We just made this fort. And, and, you know, then we ducked, you know, we're down behind it. We're like watching the storm come. It, it was the most amazing thing to watch. It just came plowing toward us. And you could almost feel the barometric pressure just dropping. And the, the wind picks up. And this thing just hit us full force. And, the, you know, the rain's coming in this way. And we're like, ah! And we ducked down below it. And suddenly everything's shaking. And this amazing storm passed over. It's just one of those, you know, happy memories that you have as a, a dad. Like, <laughs> we survived, right? So we seek refuge. Sometimes we seek good refuge. You know, we get sick and we don't do the tough it out, I'm a tough guy thing. We go to the doctor. We seek refuge. We get the help we need. Or we're having a, a, an issue in our marriage and, and rather than, you know, saying, well, we, let's just go on vacation or have more kids and our marriage will get better, we say, you know, let's, um, let, let's reach out to somebody who can help us, someone who's trusted. Uh, other times we make bad choices of refuge, like the, the two little pigs hiding from the, the big fat wolf. You know, we go into the straw houses and the stick houses, and they don't protect us. You know, that things in life get tough, and so we look for refuge in a bar. Or we uh, seek escape in escapist kind of activities, hobbies and entertainment and things like that. Or, or maybe we run to the arms of another, and we think that there'll be solace in that. But this morning I want to think with you about a storm and about refuge. And I want to think specifically about a storm that's coming from which there is no earthly refuge. That there is a tempest bearing down on us. I don't know when it's going to hit. It might be 20 years for some of us. It might be 20 minutes. Who knows? But it's, it's moving toward our position and there's no escape from this storm that's coming toward us. And the storm that... I'm thinking about in light of this verse is the storm of death itself. Death is a storm from which there is no escape, uh, no earthly refuge. There is no bunker deep enough or citadel high enough that we can flee from this dark tsunami that is moving toward our position. Uh, Death cannot be bought off through money. It cannot be thought off through education. It cannot be fought off through arms or physical strength. Uh, Death seeks all and it finds all and it consumes all. And we try to stave it off. You know, we try to do our best. We have modern medicine and that helps and we're living longer today. Uh, But still, the mortality rate hovers around 100%. (laughs) Even with modern medicine. And we try to go into denial. We say, well, you know, maybe... A little Botox, run on the treadmill, and maybe I can just pretend it's not happening around the treadmill, running away from death, and still it, it keeps bearing down on our position and coming after us. Even uh, the very aged, I was reading online, it was kind of cool, it was about super centenarians. Have you ever heard of super centenarians? People who are over 100 years old. And there's researchers who go out to find these people and try to figure out why they live so long and what, what we can learn from them medically and whatnot. And just to validate whether or not they are over 100 years old. I guess there's a problem where sometimes people are just bored and they want attention, so they tell people they're like 125. And, uh, wow. So this, there's these groups that actually go out and they try to validate it. They try to find out, like, are you really 125? And it's like, no, you're just 103. Which is nothing to sniff at, but still, you know. <laughs> They, they, they try to find out like, how old are people. And it's interesting. You know the oldest people they can find? The oldest they could validate is 115. And there's a couple 114s. That there's one side I was on. But it's like 114, 115, there's this sort of glass ceiling. 
that no one can really get beyond. It's kind of like, why is that? I mean, why wouldn't you be able to live to 150 if you could just, you know, cure diseases and things? But it's like, there's like this limit to us that eventually, even those who are the furthest from death and who go the longest, eventually they get caught up with. Death is the the perfect storm from which there is no refuge on earth. But what is impossible with man is possible with God. And God can do anything. God is not in the storm. He's not under the storm. He's above the storm. It's like those satellite photos you always see of the, you know, from satellite from space looking down on the hurricane and there you can see it. God has that view of the trials of life. He reigns above it. He holds life and death in His very hand. And so for God, there is an escape. And that's really what we're celebrating at Easter. I mean, let's be honest about what Easter is. All these songs we sang, it's the belief and the hope and the promise that God has provided a refuge from death. Like, think about that. You know, we're like, yeah, yeah, you know, He is risen. We see all this. Like, think about that. Let that sink in for a minute. Like, do I really? Could that possibly be that there's an escape from death? That this great storm, there's actually a refuge given by God? I mean, I don't know if I typically, or we typically think of Christianity and the church that way. We're like, well, you know, the church is, it has its place and it teaches people morality and it gives kids values. So it's good for that reason. And it's true, our values are good and we do have values here in church. But, you know, if all you want is values, you know, just read Aesop's Fables. You know, there's values there. There's lots of good values out there. But the message of Christianity has never been, come get good values. Although there's values involved. At the center of this faith is this crazy proclamation that He is risen. That we have confidence and hope of victory over the grave. And even here in the Old Testament book of Proverbs, getting back to our verse, when calamity comes, chapter 14, verse 32, the wicked are brought down But even in death, the righteous have a refuge. And so although the Old Testament does not have as fully developed doctrine of the afterlife and resurrection, there are these glimmers scattered throughout the Old Testament. Here's one of those glimmers where there's a little sneak peek that God has provided a refuge even in the face of death. But before we talk about that refuge and before we just latch on to that hope and dig into it, I think we have to look at the preceding part of the verse. In other words, it's very tempting just to be like, it's Easter. Even in death, the righteous have a refuge and go right to that. But remember, there's another part of the verse we kind of skipped over. And you've got to take the Bible as a whole. You can't pick and choose. It's a whole document. We have to read what it's saying. And so we need to look at that whole verse and we need to skip over that first part. So this verse, verse 32, has kind of a bad news, good news sort of structure. There's the bad news when calamity comes, the wicked are brought down. And then the good news, even in death, the righteous have a refuge. And you need to take them together. And really, the good news isn't that good until you really sit with the bad news first. So you kind of have to take them in the sequence in which they're given. So what I want to do this morning is just look at this verse. And let's look at the bad news. Then we'll look at the good news. And so we'll start with with the bad first and kind of get out of the way. When calamity comes, it says, the wicked are brought down. Now, I noticed two things about the bad news. First is that word, the wicked. I was thinking about that word. Like, we don't really use that word ever. Well, actually, in Massachusetts, we use it like every day. But (laughs) regular people don't. And we don't use it in this sense. Right? We don't use it in this sense. You know, I was trying to think. 
when in our society do we use the word wicked in the sense of evil? And I was like, okay, there's that musical. And then you watch a movie set in the 1700s and they'll maybe use that word like, you wicked, pernicious child, you know, they'll use archaic language. And then I was thinking, then there's pretty much the Bible. And that's it. You know, wicked, eh, it's a little strong, a little judgmental. You know, we're, we're tolerant, we're relativistic, we're postmodern and enlightened. And so we kind of have a squishy morality today. It's very malleable and non-threatening. And so categories like righteous and wicked are just a little bit too strong. You, you know, we're, we're not wicked today, we're just kind of dysfunctional. <laughs> we don't have evil in our hearts today, we, we just have issues. You know, I just have some issues. We don't sin today. We make some mistakes, right? We, uh, we, we're not fools. We simply make emotionally unhealthy choices for ourselves. <laughs> but let's try on the Bible's categories here. Because from cover to cover, front to back, Genesis to Revelation, you have these moral categories. Even on the lips of Jesus, he talks about righteousness and wickedness. You know, there's sort of this revisionist version of Jesus today where Jesus is kind of the tolerant, squishy fuzzball. But I mean, you go back and read Jesus. Yes, he was loving, but he was tough too. And he told it like it was, which is why he got in trouble. He was a straight shooter. And he talked about righteousness before God. And he talked about wickedness before God. And, and so, I mean, let me just ask you this. Let's do it this way. How would you categorize yourself? Righteous or wicked? If you had to put yourself in one of those boxes. Oh man, I'm not into labels. Eh, try it. Righteous or wicked? Well, I'd probably call myself... Um, I've made mistakes and I'm not perfect, but I'm generally good. No, 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 no. Come on. Cowboy up. Righteous, wicked. All right? Which one is it? There's actually, there's actually a test in the Bible, a righteous, wicked test. It's ten questions. It's called Ten Commandments. <laughs> you want to take the test? Let's do it. Bookmark Proverbs 14. It doesn't take long. It's a quick test. Do it in like five minutes. Turn back to Exodus chapter 20 to the Ten Commandments. Page 74. Maybe, maybe you've never read the Ten Commandments. Check it out. One of the most basic documents of Western civilization. Read the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20. We'll just go through, quick, tick them off. See how you do. See how I do. Okay, Exodus chapter 20 on page 74 in the Pew Bible. The first commandment is on verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. In other words, the first commandment is that uppermost in my affections, the guiding principle of my life, the purpose of my whole existence should be God. And therefore, nothing should ever supersede God in my affections, my purposes, my finances, my life. That God is my supreme. Okay, 0 for 1. Number 2. <laughs> verse 4. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. Aha! I got one! Woohoo! I've never made an idol. I've never gone out into the woods and carved up a piece of wood and put Barbie clothes on it. And you know, I've... Huh, 50%. If I was in the major leagues, I'd be a hero, 50%. Batting average, so... Well, not so fast. Is idolatry only carving statues? You look in the Scriptures, what you find is idolatry. It just makes sense. It's first and foremost an attitude of the heart. That idolatry is, is an approach to life where I create my own image of God. I think idolatry is rampant today. 
Do you want to know what I think the most common form of idolatry in America is? As far as false religions? I think it's this. It's called spirituality. You ever heard that phrase? I'm not religious, but I am spiritual. Oh. You're spiritual. Wow. You know, it's like, what is spirituality? It's another squishy. It's squishy. Right? What is spirituality? Let me give you a definition of spirituality that I think works. Here's what spirituality is. I'm making up my own religion. That's what it is. You talk to people who are spiritual. They're just making it up. They're fabricating their own religion. They don't even go to an ancient book. They just make it up. You know, it's like, well, I read this cool thing in Buddhism and then this Christianity thing and put that in. And then I heard this cool thing on Oprah. And um, this one fortune cookie I read really hit me. And then... um, my mom, you know, told me something once as a kid, and it's like Legos, right? You build the idol out of Legos, and then if something's not working so much, you're like, ooh, that's kind of uncomfortable. Take that Lego out, put a new Lego in. It's a constant work, constantly building and changing it. It's, it's idolatry. It's, it's a mental idol where we create our own religions. I mean, how ridiculous. Number three, moving on, verse seven. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Or as it's often said, you maybe more commonly here, do not use the Lord's name in vain. It's taking the name of the Creator, the Holy God who made us, and using it as an expression of frustration or anger, just treating it like it's nothing. You know, saying, Oh my God, or Jesus Christ, or for Christ's sake, or God's sake. You know, instead of saying the F bomb, we drop the Jesus bomb. That's what it is. You don't talk that way about the creator of the universe. Number four, verse eight, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Do I so honor God that I set apart in my life one day a week, one hour a week where I worship Him and focus upon Him? Number five, honor your father and mother, verse 12. Honor your father and mother. How have we done growing up when we were kids? Honoring our father and mother. Even as adults. Not that as adults, I don't think you have to obey your parents in the same way. We still have to honor our parents and yeah, <laughs> not so good. Number six, verse 13, you shall not murder. Aha, I got one. Yes. First five, not so much, but I got this one. I haven't taken a life. Well, again, God looks at the heart. The heart is what the Bible is all about. Speaking to our motives and our, our attitudes. Jesus said, you have heard it said, you shall not murder. But I tell you, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, If you're angry with your brother, you're liable to judgment. And if you call your brother Raka, which is like an insult in Aramaic, you're answerable to the Sanhedrin. And if you call your brother, you fool, you're in danger of the fires of hell. So for Jesus, you know, murder begins in here. And I was thinking about that. I was like, yeah. I mean, haven't you ever just been driving in your car and you're so ticked and you start like fantasizing about thrashing somebody? Anyone else have that fantasy? I just... None of you, I just, you know. You just get mad and, you know, something wor- gets worked up like something somebody said to you. You're like, I just like that. Mm. Or maybe you have. Maybe you've decked people. Maybe you've committed violence against people. You know? According, according to Scripture, murder, the actual taking of life, is merely the end point of a trajectory that begins in the heart. And so, yeah, you didn't actually extinguish a life, but, but our hearts are there and we've, we've wanted to take a life. Same thing in the next one. Verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Again, Jesus drives that and He pushes it into the heart level. And Jesus said, if anyone looks at a woman lustfully, 
He's already committed adultery with her in his heart. Verse uh, number uh, eight: You shall not steal. Number nine: You shall not give false testimony against your neighbors, which is really just a subset of lying, all the different lies that we tell and we've told to ourselves and others. And then number ten: Just to finish it off, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's plasma TV. You shall not covet your neighbor's SUV. You shall not covet his ski chalet. You shall not covet your neighbor's children. You shall not covet... Come on. So what I find when I look at the Ten Commandments is I find an inspiring list of morals that I would love to fulfill But I also, when I look honestly in the mirror of the Ten Commandments, what I see is 0 for 10 for me. And I see it's even more than that. It's even more than just I've failed to do some of these things or I've broken these things. What I realize is, you know what? There's a whole orientation in me that's away from God. You know, I'm not fundamentally a God-centered person in my own nature. That like at the core, I'm really Jeremy-centered. That's really what it's about. And yeah, I have a nice sort of decent suburban veneer. But really underneath, there's, there's selfishness and self-righteousness and, and all that stuff is, is within my heart. And the Ten Commandments just shove that in my face. It's like a mirror and I go, huh, you know? Yeah, you're okay, I'm okay. But when we measure ourselves this way, yeah, we're okay. But when we compare ourselves to the standard of God, I realize I'm wicked. Say it. I'm wicked. It's like tough to say, but once you start looking at God's standard. And then when I go back, go back to Proverbs 14, we need to move on here, but we're still in the bad news. The other thing I notice about the bad news is not only the wickedness, I look at the calamity that comes. Look at the consequences of wickedness. It says, when calamity comes, the wicked are brought down. That word brought down can mean to trip or to slip or to be shoved or to be overturned. Uh, it, it's a, a word ref- describing a sudden reversal of fortune. I was uh, walking down the back steps of the church office um, sometime this winter. I forget what, what month. And I was walking down and there's black ice on the sidewalk. And so I came down the steps and it was late and I didn't see it. And suddenly I hit that black ice and I started doing like, you know, the cartoon legs. Like, and then, whew, and I just went like completely horizontal and, you know, hovered there in space and then just went, and knock the wind out of me. I'm laying there. <laughs> That's the image here. You're going along fine, and suddenly, whoo, bam, gone. And, and that's what happens with sin in our lives. We think we're fine. We think we're okay. I've got it under control. I can handle this. Bam. We, we've past couple of weeks, we've had in, in the media this governor of New York. Whoo, bam. Calamity came, and wickedness was found out. And it's easy to go, but, you know, we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But even if we're able to get away with it in this life, and even if the the direct sort of legal consequences of our actions don't catch us in this life, the fact remains that that storm we were talking about, death, is still coming. And that death is the ultimate consequence for sin in this life. Uh, It says in the book of Genesis, uh, when God made Adam and Eve, He put them in the garden, told them not to eat of the forbidden tree, and then said, on the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And so death has come into the world. Death's unnatural. You know that. Anyone who's lost a loved one knows it's not natural. It doesn't feel right. 
feels like your heart has been ripped out. It has. It's not right. It's not the way God designed it. The world, you know, you know, apples growing on trees is natural. You know, dogs, you know, licking you and, and playing with things is natural. Death is not natural. It's an unnatural intrusion and really judgment upon the human race. Because we've rejected God and God is life. And so then if you don't have the God of life, you have death. It comes into the world. But looking forward into the New Testament, what we discover is that, is that it goes beyond death, really. That death, physical death is merely the front edge of the storm. And that there's actually a more intense part of the storm that's coming. It says in the New Testament, it is destined for man once to die and then to face judgment. That someday we have to stand before God and on that day He will say, innocent or guilty. He will say, righteous or wicked, you've kept my law or you've broken my law. And, and who can stand on that day, on that judgment that's coming? I wish reincarnation were true. That'd be great. <laughs> I'd give another shot. It's destined for man once to die and then to judgment. Ugh. And on that day, that storm, that final storm, is not a storm of rain, but a storm of fire. It is not a storm of hail. It is a storm of sulfur. It is not a storm of lightning. It is a storm of oppressive darkness. It is not just physical death. It is eternal, eternal death. Where when calamity comes on that day, the wicked are brought down, 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 and down forever. But, verse 32... Even in death, the righteous have a refuge. So what we celebrate this morning is that God Himself has given a refuge where human beings have fallen short, where we can't provide a refuge technologically or morally or spiritually. God has provided a refuge. And that refuge is Jesus. And, and that really helps me understand the second half of the verse. Because when I look at the second half, even in death the righteous have a refuge, what I see there are, are some questions, at least for me, especially in light of the first half. Like it says, the righteous. Who are the righteous? <laughs> if we've defined the wicked by violation of the Ten Commandments, for instance, who can qualify for the righteous? Like, that's a problem for me. Like, how do I get to become one of the righteous? How do I get into that category? And the second thing is, in what sense do we escape death? I mean, how, how can we transcend death. I mean, really, how does that work? How does it function? And the answer to both of those questions lies in the refuge God has provided. The answer to both how do I become righteous and how do I escape death is the same answer. We must take refuge in Jesus. That God, who above, who's above the storm, has provided a refuge for us in the storm in the person of Jesus. And let's just break it down in those two areas. First of all, He provides righteousness. Jesus gives us a righteousness that we can't generate on our own through our best religiosity or good deeds. Uh, you know, I said earlier that all of us have sinned, that the human race has fallen. It's not actually true. It's not that 100% of people have sinned. It's actually true that 99.9999999% of people have sinned. There's one man. There's one man who kept the law. There's one man who kept the Ten Commandments externally and internally. There's one man who loved the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength and who loved his neighbor as himself. And he was the man Jesus. And he lived the perfect life. And the amazing, 
mind-blowing story of Holy Week. The reason we have this big hoopla and sing all these songs and get all these flowers and you know, put the pastor in a dress. I mean, the reason we, we, we do this. Why are we so fired up about Easter? Because the Holy One, the One who is the hope diamond in the dung heap of this world, the Holy One went to a cross to die for my sins. And on the cross, the storm of God's wrath broke upon Him. The sky went black and the ground shook. And it was not just a a scary day. It was God's judgment visited upon Christ. And now, when wicked people like me take refuge in Jesus, we are covered by His righteousness. See, to be righteous in the Bible isn't to live a pretty good life. To be righteous in the Bible isn't to have my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. To be righteous in the Bible is to take refuge by faith in the righteousness that comes from heaven. To be clothed in a righteousness I could never do on my own. So I'm so past the point of fixing this. I need God just to save me. I don't need self-help. I need salvation from on high. And so we hide in Christ. You know what a Christian is? A Christian is not a self-righteous, Bible-thumping person who doesn't do this and doesn't do that. A Christian is simply a shivering, naked, wicked person who has taken refuge under the cross. That's all. A church is simply a collection of shivering, naked, wicked people who've huddled together under the cross and who've said, Jesus, we need You. We've tried to do this life. We've tried to work it out. And it, we are failures. We need the salvation that You can bring. And God calls us righteous. And so, isn't it amazing to think we can become righteous? We become saints? You know what the Bible calls Christians? It calls them saints. Isn't that weird? Maybe some of you grew up thinking the saints were like really super Christians. It's not biblical. A saint is any Christian. How can that be? A saint means a holy one. How can we be holy? I'm not holy. Christ is my righteousness. Christ is my holiness. But it also answers the second question of how we can be raised from the dead. Same answer. Take refuge in Christ. Because the story did not end at the cross. As you know, it went to the tomb. And Jesus was buried. And on the third day He rose, which is the Easter story. The cold, icy wave of death submerged Jesus and He disappeared under it. And we sat there for three days thinking, He's gone. The disciples said, He's drowned. And then on the third day, they go to the shore and there He is walking along the shore. And He's got the carcass of death and sin in His hands and Satan. And He throws it down and steps on it. And He's alive. And and so we have this hope that if Christ was raised and we take refuge in Christ, then someday we will be raised. And so this is how it works. To be a Christian doesn't mean you avoid physical death. Just as Jesus didn't avoid physical death. But it means that through faith, if Jesus was raised, we will be raised. And so it is a call of faith to believe that if Christ was raised, so us as well. And it makes all the difference. This was kind of a rough uh, quarter for our church. I know if some of you are new, you wouldn't know this, but we just had a lot of people die this last quarter in our church. And um, it was tough, you know. We had church members who passed away. We had people who were regular attenders who passed away. We had family members of members passing away. And like, you know, that, that's always happening in life, but it just seemed like, like, especially February, 
I, I saw like, every week I was getting calls. Did you hear about so and so? I'm like, what is going on? It just happened like in a big intense period in February. There's a storm of, of passings in our family. And um, one, one of the people who passed away was a member of our church named Orville. Some of you know Orville. It, this guy can sing like amazing. He was a bass. He would just sing a solo. You see Orville get up to sing. Everyone's like, oh, Orville's going to sing. You know, amazing singer. And just a great Christian man. But he, he finally lost a battle with cancer. And um, when, actually in February, I was, I was invited over to a prayer meeting in his apartment in Weymouth. And I went in and the, the apartment was packed. Like, I didn't know they'd get that many people in the room. We, I'm sure we broke fire codes and stuff. And we were just all jammed in this little apartment. People were sitting on the floor. And, and it's like you walked in and everyone was singing hymns. And everyone was praying and reading scripture. And so I hung out with the people for a little bit. Then I went back in Orville's bedroom. And, and there he was with his wife and brother and sister-in-law. And, you know, they talk about someone who looks like skin and bones. I mean, totally skin and bones. And he was just kind of out of it. But when he heard the singing and when I walked in the room, he suddenly rallied. He, like, woke up and he wanted some food. And so they fed him a little mashed bananas, you know. And, and, and he started talking. They're like, he hasn't, he's been out all day. Suddenly he rallied and he kind of communicated with his brother somehow that he wanted to go out. So, they, you know, they had me pick him up and put him, the guy didn't weigh anything, pick him up, put him in his wheelchair. We wheeled him out, put him in a chair. And like for the next 45 minutes, it was just everybody gathered around him, singing, laying hands on him, praying for him, reading the scriptures to him. It was amazing, you know. What a remarkable thing. To be on your deathbed surrounded with a party of worship and celebration. <laughs> That's crazy! <laughs> you know, we should all be just despairing. But instead there was such joy. And it's because here is Orville in the face of death taking refuge behind Christ. And it was like we're all with him, sort of propping him up. Taking refuge with him behind Christ. Oh, and... and you know, less than 24 hours later, he was gone. What a hope we have. Can I ask you, what is your refuge? We all have refuge in something. All of us. Doesn't matter what your religion is or life philosophy or spirituality. We all take refuge in something. Some of us, it's our intellect and our reason. Some of us, it's money. Some of us have never been challenged. We never really had a calamity. We've never had to take refuge in we never had to think about it. But at some point, we have to find refuge in something. Maybe it's just I'm tough and I'm going to tough it out. I don't know. But I'll tell you, there's only one refuge that can endure the storm. And it's the refuge of Jesus. And when the wave comes and the flood washes all away someday, and the waters recede, there will be a rock. And there will be a cross. And there will be people clinging to that cross. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we cling to You as our refuge this morning. And Jesus, I pray that by Your Holy Spirit, You would strengthen the hands and the arms of Christians here to grasp tighter to the cross. Lord, we feel pressures in our life right now that would cause us to doubt and to fear and to fall into despair. And we pray, Lord, that we would take refuge in You. And so, Lord, strengthen the grip of believers on the cross. 
And Lord, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you or has questions or doubts or is just exploring and trying to figure it out for themselves. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would show them yourself just as you appeared to Mary. God, you can appear to them in their hearts and speak to them that they would know that you're real, not because some pastor tried to give some persuasive talk, but Lord, because they've met you. I pray, Jesus, reveal yourself to everyone. And, and Jesus, I pray that if there's anyone here clinging to anything other than you, that in your kindness in the coming year, you might, in your kindness, tear that thing down so that they might be left exposed to really face You and come to terms with You as their Savior. So Lord, do a work among us. Draw us to Yourself. We pray this in the name of Christ, the risen Lord, our Savior. Amen. Would you please stand? And our closing song sings of the conquering Son who was conquered over death. Let's join together, thine is the glory, risen, conquering sun.
Hey, I hope you have a great Sunday with your families and a safe trip home. And if you like prayer after the service, our prayer team is right here. And uh, they would love to uh, just pray with you confidentially about anything going on in your life, uh, big or small. And can I just ask one of our members of the prayer team, Gary, would you mind coming over and just closing the service in prayer? I would appreciate that so I can get to the back door. Thanks, brother. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this day, the day that Christ rose from the dead. We thank you that uh, he has given us the ability to uh, put our trust in him, to, uh, to turn from our sin, and to uh, put our faith and trust in what he's done for us through his death and resurrection. We pray that you'll uh, lead us from this place, rejoicing in what you are, who you are, and what Christ has done for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.